Hello, and welcome to the Agro Innovations Podcast. I'm your host, Frank Aragona, and this episode of the podcast has been released onto agroinnovations.com slash podcast on Monday, January 5th, 2015. Welcome, everybody. I hope you had a great holiday season. I hope you had a great new year. And this is the first episode of the podcast for 2015, hopefully the first of many. And I'm thinking it's going to be a very interesting year at Agro Innovations, and I hope that you continue to tune in because I've uh, got a lot of in- exciting things in store for you as the year progresses. And um, I will say more about that, um, if not in this episode, than in some subsequent episodes. And I wanted to take the time as we enter into 2015 to revisit a familiar subject, and that is the subject of embedded hardware, low-voltage hardware, um, sensor networks, these types of things that can be used for agricultural monitoring and natural resource management applications. And so we have talked about this a little bit in the past, and I think it's a good time at the beginning of this new year to check in with some of the projects that I have referred to on this podcast or on the agroinnovations.com website, uh, the blog, and give you an update as to where the status of some of these projects are. Oh, it's been not quite a year, but almost a year since I was really diving into deep to some of the Arduino technologies and uh, some of the embedded sensor networks and talking about those in depth, particularly on the Agro Innovations blog, but also on the podcast. And so there has been uh, some progress in that realm since um, I was writing about that. And so I wanted to share that with the listeners. I think uh, this is going to continue to pick up and heat up. And I think 2015 is really going to be an interesting year for that. So I want to give you an update on where that's at. And I want to start with Project Ara. And Project Ara is a project by Google to create a modular cell phone, a modular smartphone. And this project um, has been on a two-year development cycle. Many people have said that it could not be done. And, of course, Google, with their billions of dollars and their many, many partners scattered across the globe, it seems like they are putting this thing together and it is going to become a reality. So if you get onto Google and just type in Project Ara, that's A-R-A, you will find lots of news on it. There's a lot of hype around this project. But I'm just going to share with you some of the salient features of this modular smartphone and um, give you a feel for what this project is like. So the first prototypes are due out this year in 2015. And basically, the very bare-bones Uh, modular smartphone is going to be an exoskeleton. Now, Google is saying that this exoskeleton is going to cost around $50, but they've also hedged their bets on that by saying it could cost a little more. I'm probably going to say it's going to cost probably more than $50, but I think they, it sounds like they want to get it under $100. So this exoskeleton basically is, it looks like it's about the size of a Samsung Galaxy S4, Um, But the interesting thing about this phone is you can pop different modules in and out of it uh, to make the phone completely upgradable and customizable. And so you can uh, 
for example, change the camera. You Let's say that you bought a cheaper camera because you didn't have very much money, but uh, later on down the road, you decided you wanted to get into digital photography more or you just wanted to upgrade your camera or you wanted to add a wide-angle lens or whatever it is for whatever reason, you can put a little more money into that camera. You take your old camera, you pop the module out, and you pop the new camera module in, and there you go. Your your uh, cell phone camera is upgraded without having to upgrade your entire phone. It seems like you can do this with almost all of the components on the phone, uh, whether it be sensors, um, anything from air temperature sensor, humidity temperature, I'm sorry, humidity sensor, um, also things like blood sugar monitors, blood pressure monitors, um, electrocardiograms, things that can be used by uh, health professionals like nurses and doctors. And also, uh, the CPU can be upgraded, and the display can also be upgraded. So I've seen some videos of this thing, and it's really some remarkable technology. Um, It looks almost, you know, deceivingly simple and almost kind of low-tech in a way, even though it's some of the highest technology uh, that we've developed to date. But uh, these modules, the way that they slide in and out uh, on this exoskeleton is is really incredible. And in fact, they're supposed to be hot swappable, meaning you don't have to turn off your phone to plug and play with these uh, modules as you add them and subtract them from your Project Aura exoskeleton. Now, this has some, I think, interesting applications for the natural resource management practitioner, some of which I think uh, we'll touch on as we go through some of the other projects that we're looking at. But certainly, uh, the sensor capabilities are interesting. Being able to upgrade or uh, hot swap sensors, I think, uh, has some applications. Uh, Communications certainly has some interesting applications. So, you could include a, a radio, a ham radio module into your phone and be transmitting your location, let's say, to a digipeter that's on your farm. Or um, you could have a small transponder on an animal if you have like a, a livestock situation. And that animal could be transmitting uh, location information to your cell phone in some type of custom module that's using um, a certain frequency that is specific to your farm or ranch. So there are many different potential agricultural applications, health applications to this type of technology. And I think, um, you know, we're really just limited by our imagination in terms of some of the things that this may be able to do. For example, perhaps there could be a microscope module on this uh, modular smartphone and you could get some positive identification of a bacteria or a fungal spore in the field and even uh, take some photos of it, upload it to the cloud, send it to perhaps you have a mycologist friend or a bacteriologist friend and they can tell you what exactly the microorganism that you're dealing with or looking at. So these are all fascinating and uh, exciting possibilities that are being opened up by this type of technology, and I encourage you to follow uh, this Project Ara 
as it uh, goes through its development cycle. I think this year of 2015 is is kind of going to be the make or break for it. And, you know, it was interesting. I was listening to a recent episode of the Sea Realm podcast, and I think it was Eric Boyd who said 2014 was the year that Google Glass kind of silently uh, fell out of the limelight or, you know, fell flat on its face. And that may be so. I never had too much interest in Google Glass. Um, but I think that Project Ara has been quietly developing at a rapid clip. Um, so even though Google Glass has seems like been somewhat of a failure or has sort of fallen out of the limelight, I think uh, Project Ara is, is an excellent replacement to the hype that has surrounded uh, the Google Glass. So we'll see what happens with that in 2015. Um, and I will continue to follow that and update you on Twitter and on this podcast about that. And um, I don't know if I'll be a too early adopter of one of these modular smartphones. I mean, they are not quite to the point where they can get them to boot up reliably yet. So there's still quite a bit more work to do, uh, but it seems like it's happening rather quickly. So maybe um, by late 2015, early 2016, these will be ready for market. And I'm sure that there will still need to be a lot of work that gets done to build the different types of modules and certainly the software applications that interface with these modules. Also, uh, there's going to need to be a lot of work done around that. Now, Google is saying that uh, the modules that are going to be plug and play for the phone, there's going to be some type of um, Google Play store for those modules uh, similar to what you see uh, for the applications now for, for your Android phone. So it also remains to be seen uh, to what extent this stuff is going to be open source, so what extent it's going to be spyware. I mean, those are all issues that I think uh, are worthy of discussion. Uh, but nevertheless, the fact that this technology is developing is exciting. So next up on my list uh, that I want to tell you about, and I have featured this on the Agro Innovations blog, um, are the Ninja Blocks. And the Ninja Blocks, if you just type that into Google as well, you can pull up uh, their website. And basically, the Ninja Blocks have a uh, Raspberry Pi shield. And so if you don't know what a Raspberry Pi is, it's basically like a little small uh, embedded computer. And it runs on 5 volts, so it's super low power. You can put a um, a flash drive on it, and then you can load your version of Linux. Um, there's a, a version of Debian Linux that's specifically made for the Raspberry Pi. And then you can, you know, do all kinds of neat things with that. So this little Raspberry Pi now has a shield that's called the pie crust so that shield just sits on top of the raspberry pi if you're not familiar with some of this stuff um, you should just look at some images to help you be able to visualize uh, how some of these things work they're, they're pretty simple um, overall but you put this pie crust on top of your raspberry pi and it plugs into there and then that allows you to control uh, your household appliances sensor networks many different types of things. Um, and I think that, from what I can tell, at least, these this Ninja Block operating system 
or the software packages that come along with these Ninja Blocks are all open source. I know that on the hardware end of things, they are committed to open schematics and open design. So that is great. Um, And then they also have a feature called Ninja Cloud. So it's some type of server that resides in the cloud. I believe that's free. Um, The Ninja Blocks communicate on 433 megahertz, which is a really common frequency uh, for these electronic, for different electronic devices to communicate with one another. Things like garage door openers and key fobs and those types of things. Uh, Many of them use the 433 megahertz um, frequencies. So I'm not too sure uh, what you can do with the Ninja Blocks. I haven't looked into too much detail with it, but I think it's uh, very similar to what I was just talking about earlier in that you can monitor things like uh, temperature and potentially soil moisture. Um, You could probably control actuators, things like motors to open up a greenhouse window or to open up a gate to let some livestock through the gate, those types of things. Um, obviously these technologies are still in their early stages, uh, but the Ninja Blocks is certainly a competitor. Uh, it seems like they have gotten a, a big chunk of funding, I believe through Kickstarter to do this. And, uh, their website looks quite nice and it looks like the hardware, uh, compared to some other hardware that I've seen that we'll also uh, talk about here. It seems like the hardware is, uh, it's very, it looks very nice. It's very sleek in its design. So that next brings us to Apatronics. And we've uh, talked about, I think, Apatronics on this podcast before. I've certainly featured them on the blog. And uh, I've spoken with the founder of Apatronics on the phone a couple of times, and that's Lewis. And I've tried to get him on this podcast, and I'm still trying. And I know that he is interested and willing. Uh, He's busy. And so I just haven't been able to connect with him yet, but you may uh, hear Lewis on this podcast in the near future, so stay tuned for that. But uh, here's just a little brief update on what I could glean from the Apatronics website and just some uh, brief email correspondence that I had with the team there. Uh, The Apatronics store has some hardware on it, but it seems to be all sold out. And so they have a weather station on there that goes for about $500. And then they have a field-ready bee. And so basically these bees are um, super lightweight, field-deployable. They are basically uh, sensor inputs. And so you can uh, install, let's say you have a field of alfalfa, And you put one of these bees out there and you connect uh, some soil moisture sensors to that bee. And I guess conceivably you could even connect it to some solenoid valves. And if you have an electrical source there, um, you're going to need a source to run the the bee. But if you're going to be running something like a solenoid valve, you may need a little bit more juice to do that. Uh, But then you could conceivably, you know, open and close an irrigation valve based on some soil moisture thresholds. And, you know, these are the kinds of features that uh, all of these technologies would would have. Unfortunately, their store is closed at the moment, and you can't actually buy any of the hardware. Um, Seems like some of that hardware is actually 
sold out, which I guess is a good thing. That means that they're doing some brisk business. Um, but I guess they're going to be online soon in 2015 again. So you can keep checking back with them. And if I have any more information on you know when they will have their store back up online, I will not let you know. Now, they do have some code available. And this was not the case last year. So they have started to release some of their code online. And I believe you can get that code and you can install it on a Debian box. So basically the B communicates with the Hive. And so you could have like a Raspberry Pi or a BeagleBone that has a Debian Linux installed on it and is residing at you know some central location on your farm or ranch. And the bees are sending data in some type of mesh network back to the hive. And then that hive is um, making that data accessible to you and storing it in a database. So yes, the, some of the code is now available online and you can install that code on a Debian box. I have not yet done this um, as I don't have any of the bees available to me to actually be able to send any data uh, to it anyway, so it wouldn't be all that interesting to do. Um, And now I know that their database is uh, CouchDB, which is um, running on the Hive. But I've also seen a PostGRE SQL demo that they have put together that runs on a RESTful API. Now, some of this sounds jargonish, it's a little bit jargonish to me too, but I but I understand, you know, basically what's happening with some of the technology. So, basically, that API is listening for the B to send data to the server, and when that data gets sent out, the API kind of wakes up the database and inserts the data into the database. Now, the interesting and exciting thing about the fact that they are doing some work and some integration with PostGRE SQL is that this gives us uh, the capability to use PostGIS. And PostGIS is an open-source GIS database that is extremely powerful. And I am currently working on a project that is all based on PostGRE SQL and PostGIS for some natural resource management applications. I can't say too much about it yet, but you are going to be hearing about this project probably in 2015, and it's some exciting stuff. So the fact that uh, some of the work that I'm doing and some of the work that Apatronics and others are doing can start to integrate into a larger system is exciting. And we will uh, keep track of what's happening with Apatronics throughout the course of the year. And as I said earlier, hopefully we can get Lewis on this podcast to talk about uh, some of the work that they're doing and where they're at, you know, not only with their hardware, but also with their software and uh, some of, you know, what he sees as the vision for Apatronics is uh, moving forward into the future. Next up on the docket is Many Labs, and I've also featured them on the blog. And if you get on the Many Labs website, so that's uh, the word many and labs, all one word. I think it's .org. But if you just type Many Labs into Google, it'll come right up. It's not Mini, M-I-N-I. It's Many, M-A-N-Y. That's Many Labs. And I was just on their website a few days ago, and I tell you they have a whole bunch of sketches for the Arduino that allow you to do some 
pretty interesting stuff from uh, light sensors to temperature sensors to controlling motors to doing all sorts of uh, different interesting things. Um, And now Many Labs is primarily designed for educational purposes. So to teach kids in a classroom type of setting about things like physics and um, chemistry, electronics, what have you. However, uh, because these types of sketches that they're drawing up are so applicable to some of these natural resource management concerns that many of the people who listen to this podcast have and that I have, um, a lot of their work is really applicable to a lot of the things that we do. And that's what really caught my attention with Many Labs. Um, now, Many Labs is also teaming up with the folks at SODAQ, and that's S O D A Q. And so SODAQ basically is the hardware manufacturer or the, the hardware wholesaler. I'm not exactly sure what, what the business model is there, but if you type in SODAQ into Google, S-O-D-A-Q, uh, you will pull up their website and you will see that they are selling uh, these boards. And now they have a new board, um, and the new board is called the Mibili. I, I believe that's how you pronounce it, M-B-I-L-I. And I guess that's a Swahili word. And the Mabili is basically uh, the next iteration of their their Sodak board. So they came out with the first iteration, I believe it was sometime in the middle of last year. Um, And a lot of early adopters got their hands on those boards. And they gave uh, the people at Sodak a lot of great feedback on what could be improved. And so Sodak has taken all of that into consideration and come out with this next generation board. So this board uh, is plug and play with a lot of, I believe, the Grove sensors. Um, a, you would, I would have to double check that. But basically, it, it's just another uh, interface for a person to be able to connect um, this board to a number of different sensors and actuators and these types of things, be getting data and being able to you know, actually do things in the physical world with that data. Um, the interesting, some of the interesting things about the uh, Sodak boards are they are plug and play at uh, 12 volts for a solar connected battery, and I should say that I believe Apatronics and their equipment is also plug and play for the most part uh, for with the uh, solar energy and 12 volt batteries as well. Um, and that I believe it has all the connectors just ready to go on that Sodak board. So you can just plug it into a battery and go. Uh, I haven't messed around with these Sodak boards. And actually when I got online to try to get one of the um, previous generation boards, they're all sold out everywhere except for in Europe. So the European distributor still has some of these old school boards. At least they did about a week ago. Um, And you can probably get them to ship them to you if you're in North America or Australia or wherever you may be. The new, the second generation boards, but it probably behooves you to wait for the second generation boards, which will be available according to the Sodak website in February of 2015. So these new boards have more memory, and uh, the guys at Sodak, if I haven't already mentioned, they're working in close collaboration with the with the people at Many Labs. 
So a lot of the software interfaces that many labs are is developing are compatible with um, the sensors and the SODAC board itself. And the nice thing about many labs is they are also using post-GRE SQL. And I um, know for a fact that they have been in conversations with the folks at Apatronics and just tried to provide some level of standardization between their platforms uh, so that uh, if people want to write APIs or, you know, if people want to use one group's code on the other group's board or, or whatever that may be, uh, they will have that option to do so. So there is some communication between those groups, and I think that's a, a great thing. Now, finally, and I'm going to be uh, wrapping this up here. This is This is going to be the last set of projects that I'm going to share with you. Uh, there's the folks at uh, Public Lab. And I really should get uh, the, the someone from Public Lab on this podcast because uh, they're doing some great work. And I think uh, it would be an interesting interview. And I will try to do that at some point in 2015. Although I can't say well, when that will be. Um, I've got some other things coming up that I will tell you about probably in the next episode. Uh, that that are going to make it difficult for me to get them on the podcast here soon. Um, but I will do my best to get them on in 2015. So Public Lab, if you just type in Public Lab into Google once again and pull up their website, you can see some of the work that they're doing. And boy, do they have a robust community of people that are contributing to some of these projects. And I know for a fact that uh, they are looking to grow their community and I think that probably, you know, some of the people that they would like to include in that growing community are not necessarily at this point uh, software developers, although I'm sure they always need software developers, especially people who are willing to work uh, voluntarily to help them develop some of this code. But I think, uh, you know, they probably need tinkers, makers, people who are out in the field, people who want to get their hands dirty, people who want to uh, put some of this technology to work and uh, give them feedback or help them write documentation. So uh, I'm sure all of these groups need that type of help. Uh, Whether you're a coder or a tinker or not, um, you can get your hands dirty and your feet wet with this stuff. Um, It is getting more user-friendly and accessible uh, somewhat. I mean, it's still pretty... Uh, nitty-gritty in terms of, you know, getting in there and and getting this stuff configured. Even, uh, you know, even if you are not writing code, even just to get this stuff set up, uh, you know, it's not like going out and buying a new smartphone and just turning it on and and calling someone. I mean, you have to upload sketches to the Arduino. You have to learn how to do that. And you have to, um, you know, learn how to uh, get the data from the serial port and transmit it or get your wireless set up, or whatever it might be. So there is some learning, certainly, that's involved with this. So it's um, something that will take some time, and you have to have that time available to to be able to do that. So let me share with you some of the projects that Public Lab is doing. Um, Basically, by being on their website, uh, I was able to identify three main projects that are going on, three main software projects that are going on at Public Lab. And all three of them are exciting. Um, The first one, I think, is probably the most exciting, at least um, from where I sit at the moment. But uh, the other two are also pretty cool. So the first one is called Infragram. 
and that's I-N-F-R-A-G-R-A-M, Infragram. And that is a software package that allows you to process infrared imagery. Now, why is that interesting and why is that relevant? Well, if you get on this Infragram website, you'll see that these infrared uh, photographs that are taken with digital cameras, uh, they just open up a whole world of what's going on in the plant kingdom. Now, you may have uh, done some work with infrared aerial photography and seen how you can you know, see what's going on, on the, in the ecosystem and in the landscape with these, this infrared aerial photography. But of course, we've always had to rely on groups like uh, USDA or you know, other big corporations who can produce this infrared imagery. Now, what Public Lab is doing with Infogram is they are putting that technology directly into our hands. So for pretty cheaply, you can also take infrared photographs and get some great information on plant health and, you know, ecosystem productivity and these types of things. Now, there are two aspects to this. The first is the camera. You have to have an infrared camera, but the nice thing is is that uh, the folks at Public Lab have done the work on that, and it turns out that there are a whole bunch of cameras uh, that you can modify and make them infrared capable. And so this is uh, also, I've, I've watched some YouTube videos on people doing this. Basically, you have to take the camera apart and remove some of the filters that are on that camera and then put it back together. And so it's not uh, for the faint of heart or the squeamish. However, uh, some of these cameras that you can do this with are available online for anywhere between 50 and $70. Be forewarned, and they will tell you in these YouTube videos, you can ruin these cameras by doing this if you're not careful. But uh, the videos, the instructional videos are pretty good. So I think that if you were to you know, watch those through a, a few times and get a sense of how to do this, and then just have the right tools. The tools that you need are not anything special, you know, like small screwdrivers and, and that type of stuff. Um, you could probably do this. So get yourself a camera and get started. And if you do get started with using this infogram, tell me about it. I want to hear your use cases and some of the things you can use this um, infrared photography for. Now, also keep in mind that with the drone technology, the aerial uh, capabilities are also of great interest. So basically, you can fly your own aerial infrared images. Now, I know that Dorn Cox, who has been featured on this podcast in, in the past and who's a friend of this podcast, is doing some of that work. And I probably should uh, have Dorn back on at some point in 2015 to talk about that as well. So the Infogram software package, so once you have your modified camera and you're out there in the field taking these pictures, that's not all there is to it because there's image processing that has to happen after that. And that's what the Infogram uh, software package is for. So it's basically uh, a, a photo processing package. You can pop these infrared photos into and it will give you a nice, beautiful looking infrared image like you would get from, you know, the USDA or the Bureau of Land Management or some of these large, you know, government agencies. So check that out, Infogram. It's really cool. Um, 
The next one on the list is called the Spectral Workbench. And this Spectral Workbench basically is a software package that allows you to take a spectrometer and feed that spectral data into a computer and it will give you, or or probably even a smartphone, which is basically a small computer, and it will give you a um, spectrograph of whatever uh, material that you're looking at. So each material out there in the world has its own spectral signature, whether it's uh, your desk or your front door or uh, a plant or um, probably even a soil type or a type of rock. So all of these things have their own unique spectral signature. And what this spectral workbench allows you to do is take that spectral signature and compare it to other spectral signatures. Now, I don't know very much about spectrometry, so um, I'm not exactly sure all the different potential applications of this, but if what I'm seeing and understanding is correct here, I think this could probably be used as a gauge for plant health. Um, For instance, let's say you have uh, a bean crop, and your bean crop has a nutrient deficiency. Well, it's likely that the spectral signature of a bean crop with a zinc deficiency is going to be different than a healthy bean plant or a a bean plant with a nitrogen deficiency. So being able to read the spectral signature on a plant leaf and be able to tell what minerals, if any, that plant is deficient in, well, that is a very useful thing to know. And then, of course, you can apply your supplements accordingly. And I'm sure that that type of information can really help a producer to improve their management and improve their yields uh, without incurring great costs. Of course, just like Infogram, this technology is is probably not super user-friendly yet, although I, I do think that you can play around with the spectral workbench without having to um, do too much modification to like cameras like you would with Infogram. I think you just need a spectrometer. And I think that those are readily available for you know fairly affordable prices. So now, moving on to this final project that Public Lab has. And this project is called MapKnitter. And basically, MapKnitter allows you to take an aerial image uh, and stitch it into a, another image. So... Uh, you can use like the Google aerial imagery. And let's say, um, let's say you have like a a drone that you're flying around and uh, you have a camera mounted on that uh, quadcopter and you are getting images that are much higher resolution and much closer to the surface of the earth than what you would get from uh, Google Earth. And so you need to uh, put that image into a georeference data set. And that's basically what MapKnitter allows you to do. It allows you to line that image up with um, where you would find it on Google Earth and to get that thing georeferenced. Now, the thing that confuses me a little bit with MapKnitter is I'm, I'm not quite sure why... You can't just use GPS, some GPS coordinates, and get that uh, thing 
and get that image uh, geo-referenced, my guess that the answer to the to that question is is that uh, GPS doesn't give you the type of accuracy and precision that you would need to really line that photo up perfectly uh, like like you can do with MapKnitter. So check out that MapKnitter technology. Pretty cool stuff too. Um, and if you want to play around with that, it's all this stuff I believe is free and open source. So you can do so. Now probably what would be a cool thing to do would be to feature uh, someone from Public Lab on the podcast just to talk generally about who they are and what their mission is, but then also have a representative at some later date of each of these projects to dive deeper into each of these projects and what they're doing. So I have already gone over time, and uh, I just wanted to share some of these and update you on some of these great, fascinating technologies and um, projects that are going on out there. Keep track of them. I don't want to give you the impression that this is an exhaustive list of things that are going on in this field. I can't keep track of it all, and I'm sure no one person can, or it certainly would be a full-time job to do so. Uh, But these are some of the ones that have really caught my attention. And so if you have any feedback for me, uh, please please feel free to email me at uh, podcast at agroinnovations.com. There's also a contact link on the website for agroinnovations.com. You can click on that. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at agroinnovations. And also, I've been getting a lot of new likes on the Facebook uh, page uh, for the Agro Innovations podcast. So that's cool. And going to be doing, uh, I'm, I'm really looking this year to do some work with people who will uh, help this podcast grow in terms of its audience and its reach. So I have some guests lined up who have said that they can help me do that and I can help them to you know, provide them a long-form format for them to do some interviewing and talking about some of their initiatives. So that's great. I, I like that synergy that can happen. If you are aware of anyone that um, can help this podcast audience grow who's doing interesting work and who has a large network of people that they can uh, share the podcast with, please let me know. And um, if they are the type of people that have my same type of attitude towards you know, sharing and collaborating, then I definitely want to hear from them and have them on this podcast. One thing I forgot to mention when I was talking about uh, the Infogram software is actually Public Labs has a camera that you can buy. And it's, I think it's just a little bit over $100. So if you don't want to get into the guts of your camera or buy a camera only to uh, make a mistake and destroy it, then you can uh, just get on their store online, buy one of these cameras for $100 or a little more than $100, whatever it is, and uh, you can just rock and roll that way. And that, that's probably a, a good way to go for a lot of people. So uh, I should have said that earlier, but uh, know that Public Labs does have a camera that is infrared that you can purchase, and I think that's a, a fairly recent development there. So uh, that's great. This is the Agro Innovations Podcast. I'm your host, Frank Aragona. Until next time, saludos. Saludos.